podcast from the First Church of Christ in East Palestine, Ohio. We're glad you decided to join us and hope you enjoyed this week's message. The greatest gifts are those given in love and sacrifice. From Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The gift the poor widow gave was all she had to live on. The gift may have been looked down by the rich people that had come before her, but I don't believe that concerned her. I doubt that she knew that the Son of God was watching, and even if she did know, I don't think she would have done anything any differently. She gave this gift because of her love of God and having the faith that it was for the greater good that the temple could do with it. Jesus noted to his disciples that her gift was more because she had given all. Jesus, in a short time, would also give his all. He would give his all for our sake, for our freedom from sin, and our eternal salvation. Jesus, having left the riches of heaven, had already given most. But at the cross, the Son of God gave all. But what was the son of a carpenter to give? What he did give, he gave, his, gave up his sinless nature to bear our sins. He gave up his earthly life to face that death on a cross. Of all the death penalties, the worst. And Jesus gave up, for the first time in eternity, his bond with the Father. He gave it all because of his love for us. The greatest gifts are those given in love and sacrifice. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity each Lord's Day to gather around this table to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to remember through the, through the emblems he gave us, through the bread that helps us remember his broken body, and through the cup that represents his blood and the new covenant. We ask that you be with each person here taking this, this meal today to do it in a way that will give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about how God works in our world. We're going to get a little theological, so I need you to put on your thinking caps, your theological caps today, and and really pay attention. This is an important subject, but it's not an easy subject. Now there are basically three views as to how God works in our world. View number one is God has nothing to do with anything that happens in our world. Now, as you can imagine, this view is the one that is taught by atheists. They don't believe in God, so they don't think he has anything to do with what happens in the world. It is also the view of people called deists, people who believe that God created the world, but then he kind of left it to run on its own. He's not around anymore at all. He doesn't ever intervene. 
So we, we do not accept this view. It is not a biblical view. It is not a reasonable view. The second view as to how God works in the world is that everything, God has everything to do with everything that happens. Uh, God causes what to hap- happens to happen. Uh, this is how much he is involved in our everyday world. Every step you take, you know, every breath you take, every move you make, God causes it to happen. You think you came today and you chose what pew to sit in. You didn't really do that. God did that. You, you think uh, that you chose what to have for breakfast today, but that was predestined. You think you've determined whether to stay awake or fall asleep during the sermon, but no, that's not up to you. It's up to God. That's the thinking uh, of this. It's, all, it's known as Calvinism, and we also reject that view. It's just it's too much. The third view, the one we accept, is this. God has something to do with everything. And the reason we say that God has something to do with everything is that God is in control. God is sovereign. And that means God either causes something to happen or God permits it. He allows something to happen. Sometimes he intervenes because he wants something to happen. Sometimes he intervenes because he wants to stop something from happening. Other times he doesn't intervene at all. In his foreknowledge, he knows what's going to happen, and he permits it. He allows it. He doesn't stop it. Now, God works in our world in three different ways. He works through uh, general providence. We'll talk about what each one of these things are. He works through special providence, and he works through miracles. Let me start by giving you a definition of general providence. General providence is God working through natural laws that he has established to accomplish his purposes. Now the word providence itself is not used in the Bible. You'll not find it at all in relation to God. But it's a good word to describe how he works. When you look at the word providence, you see the word provide. And it's through God's providence that he provides for us, that he cares for us, that he, that he helps us, looks after us. General providence is God allowing the laws of nature which he established, which he set into motion to take their course. God sets everything into motion, and he lets it run. He works every day, all day, through general providence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, notice this now, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus sustains all things. He keeps everything going, working, everything running. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why is it the earth doesn't fly out of orbit? Why is it that atoms hold together? Because of God, through his general providence, through the laws of nature, that he put in motion, he holds everything together. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. Notice this, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God has set up the laws of nature to preserve what he has made. So this is what we call God's general providence. This, what, this is what lies behind our, our world running orderly. Jeremiah reminds us in chapter 33, verse 25, that God has established the natural laws of heaven and earth. 
And, and, and one example, a neat example of God's providence, general providence, is rain. Psalm 135 says, he, he makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. God has established and sends us rain through the natural processes which he has established. God has established what we call the water cycle. Uh, look at the water cycle. It's a picture for you. And up in your left-hand corner there, you, you see the sun. And it causes the water in the lakes and the ponds and, and oceans and our bodies and the plants and the grass to evaporate. Uh, that evaporation is represented by the red lines on your paper. And these small particles of water, basically gas, uh, rise upwards in the clouds and they mix with dust and, and clouds are made and they carry uh, through the atmosphere, through the wind. And when cold sufficiently, water droplets condense and come down as rain. And this rain then finds its way back to uh, the rivers or the oceans or whatever. Now, according to historians, uh, the man who, uh, the water cycle was discovered over a period of years, but the man who was given credit for putting it all together was a Frenchman by the name of Bernard uh, Polisi. That happened in the 16th century. In the 16th century, they said, hey, this is how this rain stuff works. But look what Job says. This was written 2,600 years before uh, Polisi was even born. How great is our God beyond our understanding. He draws up the drops of water. We call that evaporation on our little picture there. Which distill, we call that condensation. As rain to the streams, the clouds pour down the moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. God has set into motion the way to water the earth. Other examples of God's general providence would be different laws he set into motion. The law of gravity, the law of biogenesis, life always comes from life. Laws in chemistry, laws in physics, laws of motion, mathematical laws. These laws are established so we can live in an orderly world. Can you imagine what it would be like if gravity only happened sometimes? You don't know if you're going to walk out on the front porch and, and walk up and, and float into the air or if you're going to be held down. God sent these laws of, of uh, nature uh, so we have an orderly world. And God works through his general providence in myriads of ways every day. And when we talk about God working through his general providence, that means that he, he works through the laws that he put into motion. When talking about his general providence, we are not talking about him intervening. He just lets these laws take effect. And, and those Laws of general providence cover everybody. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, He, that is God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, through his general providence, God takes care of everyone. You're righteous, so you walk outside in your backyard and it's nice and sunny. Your neighbor's wicked, so is his yard dark and gloomy? No, the sun rises on the righteous and the wicked. And uh, everybody is blessed by God's general providence. Let me give you an example of general providence. A man's on a 10-story building. He decides that he wants to end his life. He jumps off the building. What happens if he's a righteous man? He splats. What happens if he's a wicked man? He splats. 
That's God's general providence. His laws of nature are for everyone. If we did not have these laws, we, our, our world would be chaos. But if he desired to, God can intervene into our world in one of two ways. The first way he can intervene, we're going to call it special providence. Remember, without God intervening, the man goes splat. With God intervening, things could change. So here's a definition of special providence for you. God supernaturally intervenes using, this is important, natural means to accomplish his purpose. So let's use this illustration of, of this guy on the 10-story building. He decides to jump. God decides to intervene through his special providence. He goes to jump, and God sends a microburst of wind that puts him right back on the roof. God does that using natural processes, using the wind. Or the guy decides to jump, and there's a guy eating lunch downstairs in the basement. And he looks out the basement window, and he sees it's sunny. And God puts it in his mind, you know, it might be nice to eat on the roof today. He never goes up to eat on the roof, but God sticks this in his mind. He walks up on the roof. He sees this guy ready to jump, and he saves his life. Or uh, there's a big dump truck with styrofoam uh, chips in it, in, in bags. And God causes a traffic jam. Maybe somebody had a flat tire. This guy got to go out of his way. And he ends up under this building where this guy's going to jump, and he jumps into that garbage truck, and he's fine. See, that's God supernaturally acting, but he's using natural means, processes, to intervene into the scene. When God intervenes through his special providence, he does not, this is important, he does not violate natural laws. That doesn't mean he doesn't work supernaturally. He is. But if he supernaturally intervenes, he does so using natural processes. The story in the Bible that helps us understand this the best is the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was Jacob's boy. He was the favorite. He got the coat of many colors. And his brothers were jealous. So one day they threw him into the pit. They were going to kill him. And then they decided to sell him into slavery. So they sold him to the Midianites who took him south. Um, he becomes a slave. They tell dad. They tell Jacob that he was killed. They put blood on his coat and say, your son died. So he's in Egypt. He's in slavery now. He's a slave in the household of a man named Potiphar. But God is with him, the Bible says, and he moves up, and he becomes the one in command of the household. But the Bible also says he was a young, handsome-looking man. And Potiphar's wife, one day when Potiphar was out, tried to seduce Joseph. You know what Joseph said. How can I do such a thing and sin against God and Potiphar? So he, he, he runs. She grabs his coat. When Potiphar comes home, uh, she says, this young man tried to seduce me. So Joseph is thrown into jail. He's been sold into slavery. He's acted, lived like a slave, and now he's thrown into jail. But the Bible says God was with him. He's innocent. He's in jail for two years. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. One day he interprets the dream of somebody who used to be the cupbearer for Pharaoh. And he says, your dream means that in three days you're going to be reinstated. And he was. So he goes back working as a cupbearer, and one day Pharaoh has a dream. And he wants it interpreted, and nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer says, you know what? I know somebody who, was who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh calls Joseph. 
Joseph listens to what he says. He says, well, your first dream means that there's going to be seven years of plenty. We're going to have more food than we know what to do with. The second dream means there's going to be seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh, what you need to do is appoint someone to save the food during those seven years of plenty, and you'll be able to give it out during the famine and even sell it during the famine. And Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph, that's a good idea. You're in charge. And before you know it, Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt. Here he was, a a Jewish boy living in Canaan with his family, about 70 people, and now he's in charge of, second in charge of all of Egypt. Well, when the famine hits, Jacob sends his boys down from Canaan to Egypt to get some food. And when they go there over a series of events, they realize who Joseph is and they're afraid that Joseph is going to punish him, maybe kill them, maybe put him in prison. But I want you to see what Joseph said about all that had happened in his life. He says to his brothers, don't be afraid. I am in the place of God. That means he's in a place where God has put him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what's going to end up is Jacob's family is going to move to Egypt, about 70 in all. They're going to end up staying there. A while back, God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And and while they end up staying in Egypt, even after a while, the Jews are thrown into slavery, but they grow to be a nation of about 4 million people. They become a great nation. So you see all these events work together. God is behind it. God intended this to happen. So here is an example of God's special providence in the Bible. But because of the fact that God uses natural means to intervene in a situation, it makes it difficult to know for sure whether something that happened was just a coincidence or whether God caused it. Remember the story of Esther? Esther was a Jewish girl, taken, an orphan, uh, taken from uh, Jerusalem to, to Persia. Uh, there she was raised by her uncle Mordecai. And through a serious series of events, this Jewish girl became queen of Persia. The king didn't know she was Jewish. There was a bad man uh, who decided to uh, kill the Jews on one day. He had the king saying, sign an edict to have this done. All the Jews are going to be put to death on one day. And, and Esther's uncle calls her and, and says to her, she doesn't want to intervene because she's afraid what the king will do to her. He doesn't even know she's a Jewish. So he ends up saying to her this, who knows but that you were put in such a royal position for such a time as this. Everything worked together. So she could be put there, so she could save the Jewish nation. Was that God intervening? Most likely. But he says, who knows? Because you can't prove it. And that's where God's special providence is different than miracles. Let let me give you an example of God's special providence here, possibly. New York Times had a story about a man named Bill Fong. The title of the story was The Greatest Bowling Story Ever. Bill loves to bowl. He had bowled a number of 300 games. But the holy grail for real serious bowlers is to bowl a 300 series. So you bowl 300 once, 300 twice, 300 the third time. You have a score of 900. And Bill was on his way doing that at the Plano Super Bowl. Uh, He had bowled two perfect games. He was on 
uh, frame 34, and he had bowled perfect game up to there, all strikes. People had quit bowling. They had surrounded him. People had called friends. They had come. Everybody was watching. Bill, history was being made. Bowling has been around a long time. Only 21 people that we know of have bowled a perfect series. So Bill goes up to bowl the 34th frame. He's not feeling great. Uh, headache, sweating, a little dizzy. But he throws the ball and it's perfect. Hits the pins and strike. Again, he's not feeling great, but he picks up the ball. He bowls the 35th frame. Balls goes down the aisle perfectly and a strike. One more ball to throw, and if he gets this, he'll have 900, a perfect game. Well, again, like I said, he's a little dizzy. He's not feeling quite right, but he gets up, and he rolls that ball, and people are cheering already. It looks perfect. It hits the pocket just where it needs to hit it. All the pins go flying, except the 10 pin, and it wobbles and wobbles and wobbles, and it stops, and he bowls at 899. He's disappointed People shake his hand, pat his back. You know, a lot of people just get up and leave. They say nothing to him. But he goes home and he's not feeling well. And he gets real dizzy and he goes to the bathroom, throws up, goes to bed. About a week later, he has the same symptoms. He goes to the doctor. The doctor says, you just had a stroke. He does some more tests and found out he had a stroke earlier. And he asks him, did he feel the same symptoms earlier? And Bill says, yeah. And he tells him about the night that he was bowling. And how he got it, $8.99. And the doctor says to him, you know what, Bill? If you had bowled at 900 if you, have got, uh, if you had bowled a strike in that last frame, you probably would have died. Everybody cheering you on, all the excitement, your blood pressure was high anyhow, you're already having a stroke, it probably would have killed you. The fact that you did not bowl a strike saved your life. Now, here's the thing. Was um, Did God intervene? Was that God's special providence? Did he save Bill's life? Did an angel touch that pin or hold it from wobbling over and falling? I don't know. But God intervenes a lot in our life. Behind the scenes, he's working all the time. Works more than we realize it. I mean, you think back in your life, how many close calls have you had? How many great thoughts maybe have you had? How often has God, through a special providence, through natural means, intervened your life to help you? We don't know. And folks, that's partly the difference between God's special providence and miracles. You might not know it's God. You can't prove it's God when it comes to special providence. When it comes to a miracle, that's a different ballgame. Here's the definition of a miracle. A miracle is God superseding, bypassing, or overriding natural laws to accomplish his purpose. It's important. It's important that you understand this definition because we use the word miracle in all kinds of ways today. Somebody has a baby, what do we call it? The miracle of childbirth. It's not a miracle. If you call the birth of your baby a miracle, what do you call the birth of Mary's baby? You know, uh, so we have to understand what a miracle is. So let me help you with the illustration of this guy jumping off a 10-story building. He jumps off the building, he sprouts wings, and he flies to the ground. And you standing next to the guy, the guy standing next to you, you turn to him and you say, 
boy, I haven't seen something like that in a long time. You're not going to say that because you have never seen anything like that, have you? That's a miracle. Sprouting wings and flying is not God intervening using natural processes. That is God superseding, overriding, violating natural laws. That is a miracle. And I need to tell you, God doesn't normally work through miracles. In fact, he seldom works through miracles. He normally works through general providence every day in myriads of ways. He works a lot through special providence, probably a lot more than we realize. But he seldom works through miracles. The Bible does not say, expect a miracle. Some preacher said that. The Bible doesn't say it. Read it carefully, hunt for it, look for it. It's not there. If God worked miracles all the time, our world would be a place of chaos. If we really were to expect a miracle, if miracles were everyday occurrences, we would not know what to expect next. One kid dives into the swimming pool. His brother says, I don't want to get wet, so he just walks on top of the water. People would quit going to the doctors to get their medicine because they expect a miracle. You'd go to a funeral home. Instead of a burial, you'd have a resurrection. The Bible never says expect a miracle. God does perform miracles. He can perform miracles, but he doesn't do it often. In fact, in the Old Testament times, as we read through the Old Testament, there are sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years between, between a recorded miracle. I'm not saying God doesn't work miracles today. He certainly does. But it is not a regular occurrence. What was the main reason Jesus performed miracles? Was it because he was compassionate? Well, sure, he was compassionate. But was that the main reason? The main reason he raised the dead and walked on water and gave sight to the blind and healed the lame and, and uh, healed the lepers? The main reason Jesus performed miracles was to prove who he was. John 20, we read this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus performed miracles. He violated natural laws. He superseded natural laws. So you could say, what? And you would listen to what he said. Acts 2.22, Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. The main purpose of Jesus' miracles was to prove his identity. Miracles do happen today. You might be familiar with one or two that have happened. But they are not everyday occurrences. And God never said, expect a miracle. But every day in countless ways, he works through his general providence. Every day in countless ways, more often than we think, he works through his special providence. Now, if you're here today as a Christian, that ought to encourage you. That God knows what's going on in this world, that he's taking care of the world, that he's in control, that he's involved in your life. That ought to encourage you. If you're, today, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you never having faith, have you repented of your sins, confessed Christ, and been baptized into him, we want to encourage you to do that today. 
We're going to sing an invitation hymn in just a moment. And as we sing that hymn, uh, if you need to make that decision to be baptized into Christ, if you come forward, we'll take your confession today and baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of sins, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this to you this morning if you've never made that decision. Who knows? Who knows? But the God has brought you here today for such a time as this. Let's be standing as we sing together. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, we have a traditional service at 845 and a contemporary service at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Check our Facebook page for evening adult and youth service times throughout the week.